Always. We ask the question. What is needed in the world? In the past two years, the COVID-19 pandemic has stalled progress and brought devastation and hardship to every corner of the world. However, the rate of scientific innovation has been extraordinary, resulting in the safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines. But those vaccines have not been widely accessible to people who need it the most, exposing injustice and inequality. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has been working to fix that. I'm fully Batibo in Doha. As part of his foundation's global efforts, Bill Gates came to Qatar during the first ever FIFA World Cup to be held in the Middle East. As the eyes of the world focus on this small Gulf nation, unsung heroes in health and football legends gathered to advocate for investment in critical health innovation that is both affordable and accessible. In 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic became one of the most pressing challenges facing us all. We have learned many lessons from this pandemic. Most importantly, we have learned the importance of collective action and joint responsibility to eliminate the effect of this crisis. We also learned the importance of investing in innovative healthcare practices to address unprecedented healthcare crisis. At the moment, the world is extremely divided. The World Cup reminds us that all nations in the world are connected and that we all have a responsibility to work together to improve global health. We've experienced um, a pandemic not far from like a few months ago and, and uh, it has been very difficult for, for the world to, to, to live this kind of experience and I think it's important to raise awareness on, on health, on the importance of, of investing in health because, I mean, our, our life depends on that and, and uh, the future generations' lives depend, depends on that and we need to prevent the, 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 who knows, the next pandemic. So this is why we gathered here and, 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 and I'm really proud to be part of this movement. I started learning about health in depth uh, when I still was working at Microsoft. I had started thinking, uh, how was I going to take uh, the wealth that I was lucky enough to have through the success of Microsoft uh, and give it back to the world? And so I was you know, thinking about uh, equity and uh, health challenges. And so at that time, uh, a lot of people uh, saw the opportunity, and so our foundation has uh, been able to partner uh, with many different governments to invest more in global health. Uh, so that's driven innovation, uh, which has driven uh, progress. But will the world be ready for the next global health emergency? And what lessons can be learned from the COVID-19 pandemic? The co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Bill Gates, talks to Al Jazeera. Mr. Bill Gates, co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, thank you very much for talking to Al Jazeera. Now, many people around the world know you as a co-founder of Microsoft, of course, as one of the most celebrated innovators of our time. But over the last two decades, you've also focused on global health challenges, and you've just hosted an event here in Doha on how the world can prepare and prevent 
the threat of a future pandemic. We're not quite out of the woods yet with this current pandemic, and it's sobering that we have to think about the next pandemic when we're just now enjoying the things that we like to do in life, like going to a football game. So I guess I want to know first, why and how ready should we be for the next pandemic? Well, governments uh, are there to protect us. And so, you know, they have us practice for earthquakes. You know, they have a fire department with lots of full-time people uh, to stop fires. Um, they have armies that are there uh, to deal with wars. But the pandemic is a disaster that they didn't prepare for. The actual resources required to have a, a global surveillance team uh, to make better diagnostic technologies, uh, uh, to do uh, quick detection. It's actually not going to be that expensive once the world gets organized and makes it a priority. So active preparedness for the next pandemic, because as you've said, it's not a matter of if, but when. How do we actively prepare? And are you seeing anywhere in the world where there's actual preparedness for a future pandemic right now? Well, there's some good... Uh, innovation, the idea of uh, improving the vaccine so that they block getting infection, uh, making them so they last a long, long time, uh, being able to make very cheap diagnostics that you could literally uh, produce billions of uh, very quickly. So the innovation side, I think, is starting to move. But picking how we strengthen WHO uh, create a special organization dedicated to pandemics, uh, you know, how we staff that, how we get every country to practice, you know, for fire. Uh, you've got fire drills, you've got signs. Uh, so we need a little bit of uh, preparation so that we actually can stop something before it goes global. Uh, you know, so we'll have lots of outbreaks, but we don't need to have pandemics. Right. You, you've talked about the cost of preparedness and you, you say that it won't cost that much. But how do you make the case for investing in pandemic preparedness to governments and people in developing countries who are already dealing with other emergencies and who may have other priorities? How do you convince them that preparedness is what they should be doing? Well, the, the bulk of the work, uh, and certainly the finances, should be handled by the rich countries because uh, you know, they suffered a lot. Uh, and just for their own sake, not as an act of charity, uh, they should help set up the worldwide surveillance. Um, you know, there was 14 trillion of economic damage, and to do this well uh, would require two or three billion uh, per year. And in fact, a lot of those resources could work on other infectious diseases when there aren't outbreaks, uh, help us keep working on things like measles and malaria. Uh, so. You know, I see it as a pretty wise investment. Uh, for the developing countries, this surveillance uh, will be good for them, even though it'll be mostly financed uh, by the rich countries. So it'll help them see uh, how disease is shifting in their country, uh, even if it's not a pandemic. Right. You talk about rich countries helping finance preparedness. But as we've seen with the pandemic, one of the biggest failures was the unequal access to vaccines, of course, which highlighted this deep north-south divide that exists. How do we do things differently then? And how do we ensure that a more diverse group of leaders and scientists and technical experts are involved in shaping the response? How do we make sure that 
the inequity in vaccine access we saw doesn't happen again in the future. Yeah, the inequity is a little more complicated than people might think. I mean, there were lots of vaccines in China. There were lots of vaccines in India. Uh, there were lots of vaccines in the rich countries. The big inequity was that we shouldn't have vaccinated young people anywhere until we'd vaccinated old people everywhere. Uh, but the recognition of that, the ability to target the older people, uh, that was tough. Next time what we'll have is factories that are uh, able to produce far faster. And so just in a few months, you should be able to make enough for the world. And so it's not really that we'll have the factories in magic places, uh, you know, because no matter where they are, the rich countries will often uh, try and grab that supply. So we'll have enough supply uh, so that prioritization won't, won't matter because we'll cover everyone. So how do we make sure that innovation in health is affordable? Because that's really the key word, affordable to those who, who need it the most, people in developing countries. Yeah, so the, you know, the real health inequities aren't really the pandemic. Uh, the health inequities are malaria deaths, TB deaths, malnutrition. You know, and those are happening every year. We don't have to guess. We know uh, that that's there. Uh, getting more generosity uh, for that is something I push for as I travel the world. Uh, we've made progress. We've cut childhood death rates in half. Uh, some countries are generous donors, you know, for HIV, uh, things like uh, the Global Fund uh, right. and PEPFAR have done good work. So, you know, I think the example that health aid really lifts countries up, uh, uh, that, you know, it's, it should be obvious that we're not doing enough. And, and why do you think we're not doing enough? What are the challenges? Is it, is it a lack of political will? Is it racism, perhaps, as some people have said? Or, you know, what, why, why is it that some regions like Africa, for instance, or South Asia, are always the last to be looked after? Well, the, you know, malaria's been there for a long time. Mm. The, 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 the idea is to take the world's innovation and finally get rid of malaria for once and for all. We have cut the deaths in half. Uh, you know, our foundation is part of a group that founded both Global Fund and this thing called Gavi that buys vaccines for children. You know, so going from 10 million deaths a year of children in the year 2000 down to uh, less than 5 million before the pandemic started, that's quite a track record. Uh, we have a plan that if it gets fully funded, we'd cut it in half again now, the pandemic was a huge setback. You know, countries uh, went into debt. Um, you know, aid budgets were actually cut somewhat. Now we've got a tough economic cycle, the Ukraine war. Uh, so it's, we have to make it visible how important these issues are. You know, if the kids who are dying were in our neighborhood, uh, you know, we'd buy the bed nets and we'd make it a priority. So I think distance more than you know, ethnicity uh, is at the heart of this. Now, Mr. Gates, one of the other issues and challenges that we were confronted with during this pandemic, especially at the peak of it, was uh, misinformation and disinformation. And you yourself were the target of some bizarre right-wing conspiracy theories in when it came to the vaccine, of course. And I know you've had to deal with this in the past, but do you feel that it was different during this pandemic, the misinformation and disinformation that was out there about the disease, about the vaccine? Oh, it and was, how did you deal with it? It was 
quite a surprise. You know, it was people looking for simple explanations, looking for, uh, you know, one bad actor to simplify uh, the surprise of what was going on. The digital channels definitely amplified that, let people uh, resonate with, you know, strange ideas. It's tragic that that probably prevented some people from using masks or taking the vaccine when they needed it. You know, so it, <clears throat> it did lead to polarization and even uh, more death than we had to experience. You know, finding people who you trust and making sure they're uh, speaking out, um, you know, that's something we need to put more effort into. You know, who, who do you trust? Isn't it, though, a part of a trend of, you know, the distrust and, and mistrust that people have of institutions, right? And, and how do we tackle that? How, how do we deal with that going forward? Well, some of that's, you know, purely political. And, uh, you know, I hope the younger generation can take these digital tools and shape them to be more of, more of a force for good. Um, you know, I, I do believe that the ability to communicate worldwide uh, there's huge benefits that flow out of that. And now we have to moderate uh, some of the insanity uh, that uh, you know, prevents people from uh, helping themselves. Right. I want to talk about an issue that, another issue that's very close to your heart and that you've been uh, really fighting for, and, and that is food insecurity and climate change as well. Uh, the world right now is failing to meet all but two of the 17 sustainable development goals. And, and goals related to food and water security, climate, remain out of reach today. Let's start with food insecurity. What do you think is the right approach to solving it? Well, it's tragic that Africa uh, is a net food importer. You know, they have inexpensive land and labor, and you know, when food prices go up, it should benefit them. If we can work with them on better seeds, better educating their farmers, better credit to buy uh, the best seeds and fertilizer, uh, understanding their soils so that the, the fertilizers are properly targeted, uh, they can uh, more than double their output. And uh, you know that's gonna be good for the world. Uh, we're making some progress on that, but Recognizing that seed innovation uh, is the center of this, uh, that's very, very underfunded right now. Right. And global warming, of course, is a significant factor in food security. And we've seen major devastation this year in places like the Horn of Africa, in, in Pakistan also. And you've said that low- and middle-income countries should not be expected to slow the development of their economies for the sake of reducing global greenhouse gas emissions. And, and, and so I want to know then how do we tackle the issue and, and get back on track? And how do you assess the world's response to global warming? And are you still hopeful that we can avoid a climate disaster? Well, emissions are still at a very high level. Uh, and the only way to really deal with this is to innovate. If we you know, take the current innovations like wind and solar and we deploy them very broadly, and then we uh, come up with new ways of making steel and cement, uh, of having planes uh, get powered without emissions, 
you know, trucks, heating and cooling buildings. There's quite a range of sources of emissions. And if the doing that in a clean way is super expensive, then we'll be fighting forever over who should pay for that. Uh, and it, it'll be too expensive. If we can innovate the price of the green approach so that the extra cost, uh, what I call the green premium, gets all the way down to zero, uh, then we'll make more progress on the tough areas. So um, we are behind. Uh, it, we need a, a bigger sense of urgency. Uh, the innovation path has been started, uh, and uh, there's some promising leads. Now we need to uh, scale that up faster than we've ever done before. So it's, it is a huge challenge. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, through my breakthrough energy work funding a lot of companies, over 100 that work on these innovations. Right. Now, you are in Doha at a fascinating time when the first World Cup is being held in the Middle East, in a Muslim country for the first time. The tournament has been, as you know, controversial at many levels on and off the pitch. But it is also a powerful platform. So I, I'd like to know, how does this event contribute to the causes that you're fighting for? Why do you think this is an important platform for you? Well, having the world come together, uh, particularly after the tragedy of the pandemic, and be able to uh, celebrate these teams from a variety of places, a lot of upsets, a lot of you know, excitement, uh, you know, amazing professionalism. Uh, so to have it come together, be, you know, organized really well so that people are having a great time. Uh, it also lets us remind people that, you know, it's because of vaccines uh, that we're able to get together uh, and that it is one world, we're all humans, and that the inequities in health uh, and what uh, climate is doing that, you know, we're not, uh, doing enough there uh, so in a positive way you know sort of think hey we need we need to cooperate and so Qatar uh, uh, together with our foundation uh, has been highlighting uh, the health innovators and trying to inspire uh, uh, faster work on reducing these inequities. Mm. I want to ask you about your philanthropic work the Gates Foundation has given some 50 uh, billion dollars to philanthropy since 1994, and you recently announced an additional $20 billion. But there are many who criticize foundations like yours because there is a belief that other interests drive them. So I want to know, is this all purely altruistic? What, what is it that motivates you to do this and, and drives you to do, to do this work? Well, there's many different foundations. Ours, uh, the primary thing we do is nutrition and health. Uh, you know, so we fund uh, more research on malaria, more research on neglected diseases, more on child vaccines uh, than even the world's governments. And you know, we've seen that that can make a huge difference, particularly when we have partners. Uh, you know, so it's, it's very gratifying work. Uh, you know, I think giving the money this way, away this way is you know, better than somebody consuming it. Uh, and so that's you know, what I've chosen to do, working uh, with my co-chair, Melinda, and an incredible team of people and great partners. Mm -hmm. But should there not be more oversights, perhaps, of foundations like yours? As you say, there are many of them there. Uh, is well, it, the, yeah. the U.S. has uh, 
very strict oversight compared to other countries. We've got minimum payouts. It's got to be for charitable purpose. You can't have a conflict. Um, you know, charity as a whole is about 2% of the world economy. I wish it was more like 4 or 5%. So it's very small compared to governments. And in no way is philanthropy a substitute for government. Government has got to provide the basic uh, education and health. And then uh, philanthropy can come in and, and uh, support some of the risky innovation, including uh, things like new vaccines. Right. Now, you founded Microsoft in 1975, while much of the world was still using typewriters. And we are, of course, living in, in very different times today with a newer generation leading in innovation. Do you still feel challenged as an innovator to compete with this new generation? Well, I'm not competing with the new generation. Uh, you know, I'm competing with malaria and HIV and, you know, malnutrition. And, you know, fortunately, we can build teams of... Uh, uh, people cooperating. Uh, you know, there's different theories about how to solve all of those. Fortunately, we come back, you know, all the different approaches there. Uh, so it's less of a competitive framework, more of a cooperative framework in, in but, global so health. So what are you learning from this new generation of innovators? What have they taught you? Well, the, you know, the way the digital tools let us stay in touch is fantastic. A lot of my learning now is about the immune system or primary health care, how we you know, get the workers to show up enthusiastically. Some countries, uh, even very poor countries, run great primary health care systems. So we're, you know, we get those workers together to share best practices. And so what do you see as your biggest achievement today? If there was something that you want people to remember, I mean, obviously, it's, we're not talking about legacy, but what do you see as your biggest achievement so far and what more do you hope to achieve? Well, the Gates Foundation is an organization, uh, you know, aimed at reducing health inequity and the, uh, the people there, uh, the partnerships we have, uh, you know, I'm very proud of that. Not, people don't have to pay attention to it. The goal is simply that we get rid of uh, things like malaria and so, you know, then you won't have to to think about polio or malaria uh, ever again. Uh, you know, those are awful diseases, and, uh, you know, I'd love for it to be a, an obscure part of history. All right. Mr. Bill Gates, thank you very much for talking to Al Jazeera. Thank you.